0: Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church
1: in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ, but in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and their heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the four ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch the gospel is of our Lord.
0: Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, this morning uh, we have the privilege of ringing in the new year a few weeks earlier than the rest of the world. Each, uh, each Sunday, um, each year, rather, the first Sunday in December is the beginning of the church year, a new year in the liturgical calendar um, that we follow here as a church. And in these first four weeks of the church year, we call the season of Advent, the season of Advent. And the word Advent is a Latin word uh, that just means coming or arrival. And so in the season of Advent, we do two things. We take these first four weeks in December before Christmas to prepare our hearts to celebrate the first Advent, the first coming of Jesus as a baby some 2,000 years ago in the town of Bethlehem. And we begin our year by remembering how all of this started. Uh, But also in these first four weeks of December, uh, we begin the church year also by looking to the end, to the second Advent, the second coming of Jesus that he's promised all throughout Scripture— and that we confess each week as we come to celebrate communion. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And we look forward with anticipation for the day when Jesus will restore all things and establish his kingdom on the earth. And so that's why this morning, on the first Sunday of Advent, we heard Randy read that kind of crazy passage from the Gospel of Mark. Because in the season of Advent, We are lifting our gaze and looking forward to the day when Jesus has promised he will come again just as he did before. And so this morning, I just want to do just that. I want to ring in the new year by starting at the end, by taking a closer look at that passage from the Gospel of Mark and by asking what it might have to teach us in this Advent season. So if you could open your Bibles with me to Mark 13, 24 through 37. Mark 14, 24 through 37. That's also in your bulletins. Uh, We got a lot of ground to cover in this passage, uh, but if you hang in with me, I think the Lord has something in it for us. Uh, So this passage begins in the middle of a much longer discourse, a longer teaching of Jesus to his disciples that begins back in uh, chapter 13, verse 1. And it's sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, or um, my personal favorite name for it is the Little Apocalypse, the Little Apocalypse, which, by, by the way, if any of you are thinking about starting an indie rock band, Little Apocalypse, great band name. Can you imagine that? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Little Apocalypse. That's for free this morning. Um, anyway, this teaching from Jesus is actually called the Little Apocalypse because in it, Jesus uses this poetic language from the apocalyptic prophets of Isaiah and Daniel before him and then of the book of Revelation after him some years later uh, to unveil or to reveal in a kind of symbolic, poetic way what the coming of his kingdom will be like. And so this little apocalypse begins back in in verse 1 with Jesus and his disciples at the temple in Israel. And as they're leaving the temple... In Jerusalem, one of his disciples looks up and exclaims, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Then Jesus answers him in verse two, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. This is a prediction from Jesus about the sack of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In just about 30 years or so, uh, from Jesus' death and resurrection, the emperor Titus would lead an army against the city of Jerusalem and bring it to ruin. He would sack the city, kill many of its people, and most significantly of all, the temple, the place where heaven and earth overlap, the place where we could come to meet with God, would be destroyed. And so Jesus warns the disciples in this passage that these things will take place and they'll take place soon. In, in the verse 29 30 of our passage today, he says, Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. And he's right. Within 30 years or so, um, all of what Jesus said comes to pass. But for Jesus, these things, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple and all that accompanies it, are not merely just an isolated catastrophe. They're not just a national disaster for the people of Judea. No, for Jesus, the destruction of the temple marks the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the final movement of human history. In which God will return to the earth to gather in his people from every nation to renew and restore his creation and to establish his kingdom in everlasting peace. And so in verse 8, Jesus says, These things are actually just the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. When a mother goes into labor and she starts to experience contractions, we know that the arrival of the baby is near. pains are actually the signs, the medical symptoms that something good, something very good is on its way. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, when you see these things happening, you know that this final chapter of history has begun. The renewal of all things is near and is quickly approaching. This is what uh, Jesus is talking about in verses 24 through 25 When he says, in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, when we uh, hear these images, we can be tempted to think of them like some kind of apocalyptic weather forecast, right? Cloudy with a chance of falling stars. (laughs) Sunrise at 6 a.m., the moon will go black at noon. Bring an umbrella. Uh, But these images are not a weather forecast. They're poetic, deeply symbolic images lifted directly from the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Joel who talk about a day when God will return to the world that he's made to cleanse it of all injustice and oppression, to set all that has gone wrong right, to wipe every tear from every eye, and finally to make all things new. And so when Jesus uses these images in our passage today, he's talking about a day when God will come to reclaim the world that he's made from everything that holds it in captivity, a day when he will come and like a midwife in those final moments of a mother's labor, he will give birth to a new and restored creation. Uh, But for Jesus, the focal point, the main event of that day actually comes in verse 26. He says, at that time... People will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And once again, it can be so easy to miss what Jesus is doing here. Jesus says that we will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus himself, his title for himself, coming in the clouds. And we might imagine all different uh, types of ways that we could think of this scene. Uh, we might picture Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel with a burly Arnold Schwarzenegger Jesus colliding down on a puffy cloud to deal out punishments. We might have images of those old left-behind books or movies with this kind of white-robed Jesus on a cloud spaceship, rapturing up souls. But but the image that Jesus is using here is actually a much older, richer image can be easy to get lost in translation, uh, but, but perhaps a better translation of in the clouds is that Je- it's saying Jesus is coming back and bringing with him the great cloud of power and glory, bringing with him the great cloud of power and glory. It's an image not of Jesus on a puffy white cumulus cloud, but of the shining pillar of cloud. That led Israel out of their bondage in Egypt and into the land of promise. It's an image of the thick clouds of glory that descended on the tabernacle in the wilderness and filled the first temple in Jerusalem when God's presence came to dwell among them. It's an image of the clouds of glory that surrounded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was revealed to be the beloved Son of God, come to bear away the sins of the world. The clouds that Jesus brings with him at his return are the clouds of God's very presence. They're the image of a God who's unequivocally with us. of A God who's with us to liberate us from bondage. A God who's with us to dwell with us and cleanse us. A God who's with us to pour out his love and favor on us. This is what Jesus brings with him when he returns. The very presence of the God who from the first pages of the Bible has longed for nothing more than to love with us and to walk with us in the cool of the day. You see, this is why. This is why the destruction of the temple is the sign that this day of new creation of Jesus' coming is on its way. Because all throughout the Bible, the temple is the place where heaven and earth overlap. The temple is the place where human beings can come to meet with God. The temple is the place where God's presence and glory dwells. But Jesus is saying, I've ushered in a new and final chapter in human history, this final movement of God's plan to restore the world to its original purpose. And because I've done this, the entire world can become a temple where God's presence can dwell. The entire world can become a place where we can meet with God. The entire world, like like the prophet Habakkuk once wrote, can be filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the promise of the second coming of Jesus. This is what awaits us at the end of human history. This future that God has promised for his people and which even now he's beginning to bring to birth. So I wonder, though, if um, for you, some of this just kind of feels a little bit remote um, it's a prom- if the promise of the second coming feels like something distant or removed from everyday life or experience, but maybe that promise of God's restoration and presence and glory feels like uh, something that might matter someday, but may offer very, offer very little, little practical help today. And I just want to take a few moments um, this morning to invite Jesus into that feeling of distance and to invite him to teach us how the prompts of his second coming might actually change how we live here and now. So look with me at how Jesus frames this up in verses 32 through 34. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. parable from Jesus. Um, I can't help but think of the last time that my wife, Charlotte, went away out of town. Um, She was going away for a weekend to visit some old friends. And and of course, that meant that like the servants in this parable, I was left in charge while the master was away. (laughs) And like the servants, I also had my assigned task. I had to make sure that the chores were done and The house was cleaned. I had to make sure that the kids were fed and put to bed on time. I had to make sure that someone was there to watch them while I was here on Sunday doing work. And and we knew that Charlotte would return some point on Monday, but like these servants, we didn't know the exact timing of her return. Would she come back around lunchtime? Would she come back in the afternoon? Would she come back after the kids were down in bed? I wasn't sure. So the weekend came and went, and our house slowly fell into greater and greater disarray. And uh, dishes began to pile up in the sink. Laundry began to fill up. Groceries began to run low. Toys began to litter the floor. And then before you know it, Monday morning rolls around, and I look up, and I look around the house, and I think to myself, about that day or hour, no one knows. Be on your guard. Be alert. <laughs> and so I kick it in the high gear, and I'm picking up toys, and I'm folding laundry, and I've got the essential oils diffusing, and I'm loading the dishwasher <laughs> while I'm brushing a kid's teeth. Why? Because if she returns suddenly, I don't want her to find me asleep. Now, of course, I'm, I'm uh, poking fun at myself a little bit, and I'm not quite that bad of a procrastinator, and Charlotte doesn't really care if there's a few dishes in the sink. When home. But, but the point that I'm trying to make here is this. Not all waiting is the same. Not all waiting is the same. The, the, the waiting for the second coming is less like waiting in line at a grocery store and more like waiting for a family member to return. It's less like sitting in a waiting room in a doctor's office and more like waiting for that long-anticipated visit from a friend. It's less like waiting on the line on hold with a customer service representative and more like a young couple waiting for the day of their wedding to arrive. It's expectant waiting. It's anticipatory waiting, purposeful waiting. It's the kind of waiting where preparations need to be done, Look at the words of Jesus in this passage. What's that command that he gives over and over again? Be alert. Be on your guard. Be watchful. Keep awake. Five times, Jesus gives some version of this command. Do not fall asleep. Keep awake. You see, Jesus knows that our greatest temptation as followers of Jesus in this time between his two advents Um, is not that we will become too fanatic or too obsessive about his kingdom, but that we'll fall asleep, that we'll get distracted, that we'll disengage from our life as followers of Jesus and our role in his story. Verse 34 says that the master put his servants in charge while he was away, each with their assigned task. And so, when, when Jesus talks about the master returning suddenly and finding his servants asleep, he's not talking about just any kind of sleeping. He's talking about sleeping on the job. Disregarding or disengaging from our task as his followers. The kind of spiritual drowsiness that causes us to miss out on the work that God wants to do in us and through us a spiritual drowsiness that leaves us unprepared for his arrival. So friends, uh, is there an area in your life that you have fallen asleep to the reality of God's kingdom and the assignment that you've been given as a follower of Jesus? Is there a place in your heart that you've disengaged from your life with God? Is there a a way in which too many of the hours of the, your day or too many of the dollars in your bank account or too, many, too much of the best of your energy has been consumed by something less than the kingdom of God. Is there something in your life that's dulling your spiritual senses to the hope that you've been given in Christ? This week I've been preparing for this sermon. I've been asking the Lord to, to show me a place in my life that I've fallen asleep to the reality of the kingdom and, and over the last couple days, uh, the Lord just very gently but very clearly brought uh, two specific areas to my life in mind. Uh, one area where I've allowed my spiritual senses to be dulled to his heart, and one area where I've disengaged from my task as a follower of Jesus. And the first is very simply just that I've allowed the moments and the margins of my life to become too preoccupied with my own entertainment. That too much of my downtime, too many of the in-between moments and spare minutes of my day are spent consuming some form of media or pursuing some kind of pleasure or entertainment. And that none of these things are bad or irresponsible in themselves, but that given enough time, um, they begin to crowd out my attention, to sap up my time and energy, and to actually dull my awareness of and desire for Jesus' presence in my life. And then the second one he brought to mind is simply that um, I've disengaged from my instruction as a follower of Jesus to befriend those who are far from God. That I've allowed the prayer for those in my life who do not know Jesus and intentional pursuit of friendship with them to become a marginal concern, an inconsistent practice in my life. Now, I'm, I'm sharing those with you this morning. Uh, very simply just because I think that there's power in naming the things that lull us into spiritual drowsiness. It's like being shaken awake. Um, There's a way in which bringing these things out into the open actually frees us from feeling shame about them and from feeling paralyzed by them. There's actually a tremendous freedom in saying, I've fallen asleep, but I'm waking up again to the reality of who I am and who I'm called to live as, as a child of God. And so this morning, I just want to gently challenge you to ask yourself that question. Is there any way that I've fallen asleep to the reality of Jesus and his kingdom? Is there any way in which I've disengaged from life or mission as a follower of Jesus? Is there something that is dulling my spiritual senses to what God wants to do in me and through me? And then just ask yourself this question, how might Jesus be calling me into a renewed kind of wakefulness this Advent season? Is there a way that I can rouse my spiritual senses to become alert and aware of the presence of God in my life? We saw earlier in this passage that um, the destruction of the temple was actually a sign that the presence of God was being released into all the world, that God was making himself accessible to us anywhere and anytime. So maybe for you in this Advent season, wakefulness simply looks like leaning into that reality of the everyday moments of your life, simply taking that time when you're in the car, when you're folding laundry, when you're eating breakfast, to simply say, God, you are real, you are with me, and I want to be with you in this moment. I want to live with eyes wide open to your presence. Maybe the Lord just wants you to become more aware of his presence in your everyday moments this Advent. Maybe he wants you to long more and more for his presence in your life now and more and more for the day when his presence will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. I'll just um, just close with this. Um, this week, uh, Charlotte was setting up our Advent wreath and getting out candles that we were going to light together in the house each week this Advent. And uh, as she was getting them up, our daughter, Talia, started asking some questions about them. What what are they for? Uh, Why are some of the candles purple? And why is one of them pink? And so Charlotte um, started explaining uh, what each candle was supposed to remind us of and about how when we lit these candles, we would be reminded to have hope that Jesus is coming back. And so Talia paused for a second and asked, what does hope feel like? That's a good question, right? So then Charlotte paused and thought for a moment, and as she so often does, she said this simple, memorable line, hope feels like waiting for a friend. Hope feels like waiting for a friend. Friends, this is the meaning of Advent. This is what it looks like to live a wakeful, watchful life in the Lord. It's living like a little child with their nose pressed up against the window, buzzing with excitement, craning their necks for the moment when they get to see that car coming around the bend and they know that their friend is arriving. It's living with a longing in our hearts for the presence of God to fill the earth when Jesus comes back and a longing to just get a little bit more of that presence right now come Lord Jesus in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church we'd love to hear from you you can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org and now may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path